So we're about to start a series with Dr. Sati Clark. I'm delighted to have him here. He uh, is one of the most popular professors at Wesley. There's always a waiting list for his classes. Um, I'm just delighted to have you here, Sati. And um, I wanted to just read a little bit about him to get us started, and then we'll have a quick prayer and get our series off and running. So Sati offers new ways to engage as Christians in an interreligious world. He has facilitated Bible studies among the homeless and also finds joy in church ministry. For 30 years, he has developed a passion and a love of academics and teaching, as well as academic research and preaching. He does all these things continuously still today. He was telling me that he's teaching, I think he said, 15 classes in churches between January and May, in addition to all the teaching that he does at Wesley. Um, So he's quite a remarkable, energetic uh, professor. He holds graduate degrees from Madras University and Serampore, did I say that correctly? Serampore University, as well as Yale Divinity Degree and a Harvard Ph.D. Uh, Sati has worked among the Dalit in rural communities in India, and he is the Bishop Sundo Kim Chair of World Christianity. He is uniquely adept uh, at bridging the world between the establishment and the marginalized, the global and the local, the academy and the congregation. I want you all to um, enjoy this program. He's going to allow time for questions, both ongoing during his lecture series as well as the end. So with that introduction, let us open with a short word of prayer. Dear God, we come here as a community, Westminster, and look to stretch our understanding of faith and world affairs. Help us to be open to where Sati takes us in this series and to learn and grow in our faith as we come to know ourselves, we come to know God. And as we come to know God more, we come to know ourselves. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Um, Good morning, and thank you for being here. Um, It's it's always a pleasure for me to be among God's people that are scattered in different tents and abodes across the world. And very rarely do I pass up an opportunity to come out and talk with God's people. Because in many ways, I work in a seminary, and because students are there and they've paid to be there, I can do only so much with them. I take much more risk when I'm with God's people because all of us are here because of the call of discipleship. And what is discipleship? It's the ability to walk on the path of our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are on this path as disciples to keep in mind that the Master has invited co-disciples without consulting you. That's the difference in terms of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Again, discipleship and pathways are broad, they're open, they're in the world. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, He does the calling... And you do the following in conversation with all those whom Jesus has called. So in many ways, the disciples of Jesus in that sense ought to be the widest, broadest, most diverse community that continue to joyously follow. 
And this is something that I'm learning a lot about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to belong to the body of Christ. That in some way, as different from all the choices that we have as Americans, the discipleship involves accepting, sometimes shutting up, sometimes not rebelling against the journey that's happening on the path of discipleship, following the Master. And I'm now convinced that unless we think about discipleship this way, a lot of us may in the end opt out for the heaven that has been constructed around the community of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that will be somewhat hellish for us. Because what we have a conception of heaven is all the people that I like and who like me and we'll all share everything together. It will only be meat and potatoes. Forget those vegans there. And we will all gather together and say hallelujah. So unless we can learn this here, we will not be comfortable with sitting at the table that again, the host being Jesus. And so that's one of the reasons why I, I really love just going out with people and, and challenging us as to what this means in, 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 in our world today, in the 21st century. So what I'm going to do is lead us through three short sessions. Maybe really long for you because it's 45 minutes and you have time for questions. Uh, but um, um, Amy knows at Wesley, I have my students in for three hours. Uh, so I've got to dance. I've got to, you know, like a performing monkey, I tell students. Because every time I see them kind of nodding off, I've got to go close to them and challenge them and then move back. And the great thing is that once you start moving towards a sleepy student, they will never sleep again in that session. <laughs> anyway. Uh, what I'd like to do is, is talk about Christian uniqueness in an age of religious pluralism. Um, and this is particularly true of who we are as Christians in this country. Um, we may have different positions on what's going on over the last month. Suspend that. I'm appealing to you as a Christian. I'm appealing to you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So... Tread along with me, even if it's uncomfortable. Go back to your own space if God wills and feel secure there. But come along with me. Um, and take me along with you if you need to. And that's the whole idea of a session that involves somewhat of a dialogue between where we are in different places as God's community that have taken our discipleship seriously. So... The overall topic is Christian uniqueness in an age of religious pluralism. And this is where I see the sea change that one sees. Now the sea change is different because sometimes we can accept it conceptually, right? And say, aha, we're all different. But often it grates on us when we have to experience this concretely. Oh my goodness. You mean you Indians eat with your fingers? Give me a break. And um, that's correct. Only one hand and the right hand. But let's not go, why? Let's not go anywhere further on that. Okay, okay let's go back. So Christian uniqueness in an age of religious pluralism. That is not just conceptual. That all of us as Americans celebrate it. Ah, conceptually we're a wonderful country. We're all either melting or salad bowl, whatever it is. Wonderful. And then suddenly they're all really around up, you know, just turn around and, oh my goodness, this is different. Concretely, what do we do? How do we work? So what is the Christian calling that we have, even as we seek to negotiate the sea change of religious pluralism? So I, I won't read this, um, but, I, you know, it, it, it's fairly simple in terms of, of the description of what I'd like to do through, through the next three weeks. Just want you to, to, you know, to place before you uh, something that we will do, and that I will draw from world religions, theology, and my lived experience among faith communities. So you'll find a co-disciples journey, and my reflecting on this together. 
right? So, so keep that in mind as we're working towards this. Um, this will challenge us, and I hope it will shape us all, including me. At the end of this, I've come back from sessions and said, Sati, you're completely wrong on this. Rethink what this means for us as Christian discipleship and your own Christian witness, right? So that's constantly happening. So what, uh, again, let me just give you a sense of the whole, and then we'll go into my first talk. So our first talk is compassionately interfaith for the common good of all creation. What is the sense of a primary sense of belonging for all of us? And I'm claiming that the sense of belonging is a compassionate interfaith, and this being for the common good of all. The second is, you, we are not just compassionately interfaith. We're also passionately Christian. I learned this while, while uh, studying uh, for, for six years through the graduate program at Harvard and then teaching there for a couple of years. Uh, I learned one of the things that I had mistakenly started doing was falling into what is generally a liberal uh, myth that if you want to make people more interfaith, you try and work and get out of them what is passionately being Christian. So somehow if you take away their passion for Christ, they suddenly will become compassionate to everybody, Christ, Buddha, Krishna, everybody. And I said, it doesn't work because it's not who I am. And then I discovered that my role, wherever I went, is to get people to claim what it means to be passionately Christian. Celebrate that. Dance around that. Feel joyous about the passion for Jesus Christ. And yet, use that passion to allow one to become compassionate to all, which I think is symbolized by the compassionate one. Jesus. Right? So, I, I've now learned that it's in this balance that we're asked to live. It's to continue to be bubbly in the best way possible and deep as though we're in a spring that stems from being rooted in Jesus Christ and the triune one, but also to extend that in terms of becoming compassionate. So we'll del deal with some of that today. We'll deal with uh, what it means to be passionately Christian. And if you notice, there's, all of us theologians are trained to play with words. So how does one talk about compassionate interfaith for the common good of all creation? And second, we'll say, so passionately Christian for the uncommon work among the commoner. And I'll lift that up to you. I'll tell you what is the uniqueness of being and following Jesus' path. And it's not just common work. It's more than that. And I'll talk about what we see as being uncommon work and how this is rooted in Jesus Christ. So what are we called to do even as we're following and becoming disciples of Jesus Christ? And thirdly, what I'll do is I'll do a little bit of theology. I'll, I'll, I'll challenge all of us. And the third session will be spaciously Trinitarian for being both passionately Christian and compassionately interfaith. So I'll try to say that let's go back to our basic orthodoxy that I believe or we believe in God as Trinity. That in a sense, God is community for us. Okay? And how that opens up a certain spaciousness within us as we celebrate Jesus Christ and we look at the insights and truths and gems that are littered all over the world that we can see and say thank you Lord I will still be a Christian but I will be spaciously so being rooted in Jesus Christ again as Amy said um, stop me for conversation stop me if you feel that something is not clear I'm absolutely open to that this is your session as much as I have prepared it for us to be a session that enriches all of us. So I want to really go at, at a pace in which we will. So, but this is really uh, what, what we'll do over the, last, uh, uh, over the next 
couple of weeks, this week and then the next couple of weeks. Now, what I'm learning is um, in the sea change of religious pluralism and all that's changing around us, I'm thinking of Christian uniqueness as the quality of cultivating Christianness in a pluralistic age. Now, you'll say, so what's the big deal? I know you guys are paid to invent new words and try and tell us and convince us that we should be using that. Why do you say this is the challenge in the 21st century? Let's think of, of it in terms of the three moments of Christianity that is historically worked out through the centuries. As we look around, we can say there is the appeal for us to think about what it means to belong to the idea of an empire that is Christianity. Okay? So, this is usually talked about as Christendom. Christendom. The kingdom of Christianity that is politically worked out. So, one of the options, a lot of our conversations that we've heard over the last year has to do with the appeal to get us to buy into Christendom. Oh, what will happen if we're minorities? Oh, what will happen if this culture is taken away from us? The wonderful Judeo-Christian culture. How can we allow this to rule? And keep in mind that this was part and parcel of what happened in part of the first millennium and a lot till the 1900s. And so the whole world was thought of around this notion of how we support what we do within a context that was moving towards Christendom. Okay? So Christendom is one of the models. The second model is one that is appealing to us in terms of Christianity. So how does one work out one's religiousness? Okay. A lot of this can be associated with being a disciple, but a lot of this has to do with the social formation of how do you live out your own religion within other competing religious groups. Okay. So for a long time, particularly within the history of religions and comparative religions, the question a lot was, okay, so how do we shape ourselves to Christianity in the face of Hinduism and other religious traditions? So there is the appeal to Christendom. There's an appeal to Christianity. I'm appealing to cultivating something that can be called Christianness. It is almost that spring that whether you like it or not, has to be expressed in this world. And it has to be aligned with the sense of, come, follow me. Okay? Come, follow me. It's this deep, intuitive sense that we've heard this call. And we cannot but keep cultivating within ourselves all the qualities that is needed for being faithful to this following. So, what I'm doing, and this is where I'm using some of Diana Butler, Diana Bass Butler, I don't know if some of you read, read her books on emergent Christianity. So what she says is very interesting. She said, today's world, in the 20s, the sea change that we see among Christians is that there is a change here where previously we talked about believing first, and then belonging, and then behaving. That's the classical model. And so, for example, most of us know, for the first thousand years, off with your head was basically usually for those who didn't believe right. Correct? So the conception was, aha, you believe all of this, and then you belong to a community that also believes all of this, and then you will all behave correctly. Okay, so that's an older model. I'm working, and that's why you will see the way in which I'm framing the three lectures. I'm starting with belonging. 
So when you talk about Christianness, the idea of belonging comes first. Behaving secondarily. And then we come to believing at the end. So believing in a sense is an acclamation after all that's happened to you. And so that's why I think that there are instances in which the opening of someone is when Jesus asks him, do you believe? He says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Which means that, aha, I know you, I belong to you. I've been healed by you, I've been loved by you, I've been called by you. I now will work with the community alongside whom you've asked me to travel because we've all heard, come, follow. And at the end, we will all acclaim and say, we believe. And I'm almost sure at the end we'll still say, help thou my unbelief. Okay. So this is, in a sense, what we're trying to do today and look at Christianness. So I'm, I'm going to make two moves. Okay, so the first, the, the general is compassionately interfaith for the common good of all creation. What is this belonging that we're asked to think about as we develop Christianness as a way of forming who we would continue to want to be and cultivate what this means in the public realm. Okay? And the first part of this, I find, in the 21st century, is what it means for us to discover the multiple hyphens of belonging. What does it mean to discover the multiple hyphens of belonging? Uh, most of us know that we're multiply hyphened. And hyphen is basically that which holds two things together without knowing how they're held together, but knowing that there's an intimate relationship. That's why it's a hyphen. Right. So, for example, I can always tell people that I am an Indian hyphenated Christian. Now, what this means for me is that in some strange way, India is both a culture, a religion, a way of life. And whatever happens to me, that is part and parcel of how I will live out my Christianness. Right? So it's, it's really part and parcel of what happens. I'm increasingly realizing that the multiple hyphens hold together in just the oddest of way possible. Right? So now I'm finding that I am, my Indianness is also multiply hyphened, which is I find myself deeply culturally rooted in a form of Hinduism, which is my Indianness, that I sometimes embrace and sometimes I'm ashamed of. Sometimes I think I celebrate, sometimes I prophetically critique. Okay? So the idea of us simply being a Christian for the world may not be completely true. We have all these hyphens that we have to deal with. And I will place before you the three most important hyphens that we continue to discover as we think we're part of belonging. Uh, I love the term. I don't know if anyone has read Thich Nhat Hanh. He's, he's a Buddhist, uh, 90 years old. Uh, he, I think in, in December or January, he was flown from the U.S. back to Plum Village in France, where he is back among his disciples. He's not been well for the last couple of years. Amazing scholar. He's written a lot on Buddha and the Christ, dealing with the theme of compassion. What this means, both of them as being compassionate ones. Um, but I've I taken on this term, interbeing. And I, I've really thought of myself now as within the 21st century trying to reclaim and to discover all of this and how this is part of my Christian-ness as I live in the world. Right? So this is what 
Thich Nhat Hanh talks about when he says interbeing. In one sheet of paper, we see everything else. The cloud, the forest, the logger. I am therefore, you are. You are therefore, I am. That is the meaning of the word interbeing. Inter-arness. You can never be a being apart from those that we share hyphens with. In fact, all of us know this, right? The moment we're unaware of that and we're not able to discover that, a lot of things will start getting fragmented in our lives. The more you honor this and grow this, you will realize that everything around also realizes that we're living within this wonderful wholeness which is interbeing. Right? I've been married for 36 years um, to someone I met in undergraduate. Um, uh, I, 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 you know, one of the things that we've told ourselves after many years that I will not get her to come to any of my talks. Uh, and I discovered for different reasons. She was pretty bored. Every, it's like, come on, again? Um, that's one. But second, I realized I was not really for it because every time I, I, I'm involved with moral suasion and getting people to do something, after two weeks she says, Sati, you did this, but didn't you say we should be doing that? I was like, oh no. Don't hold me accountable to everything that I've said <laughs> to get people to actually move Anyway, so we've been married for 36 years and I discovered this only after, I'd say, 15 years. Because I had always thought that she was there for my fulfillment and love. And, and a lot of us make this strange, we don't know why it is. I think it's the world, but I think it's also deep down within, right? So, um, take the, I mean, the Valentine's Day, February 14th. Uh, we say love. Right? I love. I love. Now, for the first 15 years, the idea of love for me is the fulfillment I felt. And only when I felt that, I could say I love. Right? So, which means it was not interbeing at all. Right? Uh, and that's why I've never bought my, my, my wife flowers for years and years and years. Because that would have made her feel loved. Right? And then suddenly I realized whether it is sexuality, or my idea of getting her to follow me between India and some village that I wanted her to go, I thought that this is how she participated in love because it was what I felt always. And then somewhere along the line I realized, hold it. Love actually doesn't reside inside somebody. It, it always resides in between. It actually is something that only can be judged between the other person bending over and reshaping themselves for you and you twistedly also bending over to then reshape yourself for the other person. This is what is happening within belonging through the discovery of hyphens, that which holds you together. That in the end is something that involves a celebration of what it means to interbe, to be completely aware of the fact that all of this is held together. I've come to the position, and I've made lots of mistakes along that, but I still believe that everyone that comes before me as a pastor, as a student, or even asking me a question, I always say they have been placed there for a purpose. Lord, help me to discover what is interbeing for me. So I now, uh, and, and I've made an ass of myself through that, right? So you take somebody so seriously, right? You go, you spend a lot of time, and then you realize that this was just a, you know, they've just been fascinated with some Indian fellow who can speak a little bit of English. That's it. Okay, it's all over. But I've never ceased to do that. To, to say, I'm not going to take it seriously. Anyone that comes out, I always think, there could be a purpose. 
what could that be? And that's in many ways, it's helped me live away from all the things that biologically has connected me. We've been separated from our children, two boys, um, from the time we decided we're going to go after graduate school and both of us, my wife and I, were working over here, had a great future. We went back to India. They were 14 and 11, went into boarding school, and still over the last 10 years, they live in a continent that is the most further away from us ever. Okay? Australia. Both of them, with their families. Now they've gone and married Australians. It's like, which means... <laughs> but what this has told us then is this, this journey that I talked about of come and follow means that there's always an interbeing that has been a shade for us, has been a grounding for us wherever we've gone. So we have to keep our eyes. And that is what it means to be a Christian community. Without that openness, we are following ourselves. And what we believe fulfills us. Within the consciousness of interbeing, we're saying, oh Lord, we live almost authentically through our hyphens. Love lies in between relationships. If you haven't reshaped yourself to bend in such a way, you don't know what interbeing in love is all about. You can give as many flowers as you want. But we're all then part of a transactional society. So that's why, in, uh, I'm sorry, I'll just go off once and come back. Because I, I love uh, scripture and it's, it's part of... Uh, Luke 17, there's a beautiful phrase. The kingdom of God lies... You remember? The kingdom of God lies within you. There's another translation if you look below. The kingdom of God lies within but can also be translated in the midst of you. And I love, I'll put his name up when we go. I love Raymond Paniker. He looks at the Greek, goes back and says, I think it means also that the kingdom of, lie, uh, the, the kingdom of God lies in between you. And I tell you, just knowing that has saved my marriage. Not, I think I, think I would have saved it because, you know, you, you, you can work it out in such a way. You're, but it saved us so that both of us basically feel that love is in between. And it involves basically shape. It no longer is what I feel is bubbling in myself. And so if I don't feel it, I feel, oh no, there's no love. It forces me then to reshape and reach somewhere in between. And that's not just with a spouse. That happens with a child. It happens with the, with, with the person that you've considered poor. It happens with the person that you work with who is the lowest in the pecking order. And that's a different kind of in-betweenness. We think of everything laterally, right? There's also an up and down in-betweenness. That involves reshaping in such a way. And that, I'm saying, is part of that truth that allows us to live out compassionately within a world that is interfaith. Let me uh, go on to place before you um, three of the hyphens that are becoming really important for my discovery. Um, one of the hyphens that all of us know uh, comes from the great commandment that I will put up soon is loving God and loving your neighbor. But one of the essential hyphens for loving and interbeing is being connected with God. And I've learned, and this I, I, I put this up purposely because it represents my journey. Human beings before God, being linked up with God, feeling their belongingness with God in the most authentic way possible is both in gratitude and in submission. I learned these two qualities when I started journeying with my Muslim brothers and sisters. Look at the difference between the posture. What do you see on your left?
bowed heads but straight backs, upright body. So the Muslims will always tell you, I, I, if you, um, you know, I would urge you, get one of your clergy persons to lead you this Lent into a pilgrimage into your Muslim community, brothers and sisters. For nothing else, you, I'd not ask you to pray there. I just want you to look your brother and sister in the face and see some of the things that you can say, wow. A lot of things you say, really? But there's also a wow. Right? This is always different. When you meet a neighbor who's different, there's always... But one of the things I learned is this. Whenever they come together, they stand together, shoulder to shoulder, and they start this way. Heads bowed, sometimes up here, and usually this way. They're hearing, they're upright. So you ask the imam, so what's the big deal? This is like strange for me. On the one hand, you're like prostrating. I've never seen anybody do in my community. Uh, we grovel in front of power, but we don't do this prostration before God. I promise you. I said, our community, we don't do this. What is it between this prostration and then? Why do you? He said, it's the most important thing for us in the beginning of prayer to stand up straight. Why? I said. He said, because that's the uniqueness of being human. We were all on fours. But because of God, we can stand and say, oh Lord, we're ready to hear. And of course, there's a lot of difference, right? So they don't believe in original sin. Now, Muslims believe that God didn't wait, and depending on where, either 4,000 years, which I'm a little suspect about, or a couple of billion years. God didn't say, okay, Adam and Eve, and then after a billion years, work up and say, oh, now I've got a plan. It took me so long to hatch this, but I've got a plan. We'll send Jesus Christ. And then we'll forgive you. So what happens to all those people in the billion or two years? No one knows. So Muslim says, we have a better idea. God came out and said, of course you've sinned, you rotten creatures. But my mercy is from everlasting to everlasting, which means it starts off from everlasting and goes to everlasting. I forgive you. Stand straight when you see in recognition of me. So that's one thing that I learn a lot in terms of the interbeing. That it's gratitude. Stand up and say, of course, it's not reformed. We start the other way around. <laughs> and then the second is not just gratitude, but submission. I tell you, again, my personal journey, what I learned from this. Already, you know, I work with the heart. I use my hands a lot, my wife says. But a lot of what I do is cerebral. I've been paid for because of my brains and what they're able to do. I think through my uh, mind. The Muslims taught me what it means to submit. Can you tell me one thing if I was struggling with a problem that my brain was up here and was willing to listen to everything, but my brain couldn't submit? One of the things, if you'll notice of this, so for example, take me, just look at me. If I go down like this, now I'm talking in my head, right? When I do this, what is happening? Say it again. Blood, but the elevation of the heart over the head. So what I now do through Lent is sometimes every day, but I'm not as disciplined as Muslims, at least once a week, I start off and say, Oh Lord, May all the gifts that you've given me in my heart flow into my mind so that my mind submits completely to your heartbeat and what it wants for the world. So this interbeing is, holds together this complexity of standing straight. And I say this particularly in our country where minorities, sexual minorities, other forms of minorities, blacks, uh, Native Americans, women a lot, have been pushed down. I tell them, start with knowing gratitude. Get there. And I say, people like me, who think they're too smart, who stand up straight all the time, Indian patriarchal men, start the other way around. Submit. That is the amazing ability of interbeing with God. 
And that's why I always think, you know, as a preacher, I always knew this. All the word of God is a two-edged sword. It will come to those who are lofty and high to cut us down. And it will come to those who we have made low. Stand up straight. And reclaim who they are. So this is a very important aspect of our interbeing and belonging. What it means to belong. Okay. Um. Is there another way to do this? Let's see. We need. We needed to move to the next slide. Should I be doing something different? Um, I, I know there's a yeah. We'll try everything. Let's un- unchain. Okay. Start over. Okay, of, of course, while, while Amy's working on this, and I can figure out what I did wrong, which is, again, I've gone out of interbeing, right? But this has nothing to do with us. It has something else to do here, but that's okay. The other part of our connection is really our deep connectedness to each other. And I've already told you some of what it means, of what this connected is. In, in this interbeing within the 21st century, it cannot be based on our choice of who we want to be connected to. It has to do with what we can say is the economy of God working in this world and bringing to each one of us a way in which we truly are connected with the people that God wants us to be connected. I've learned this through my discipleship. So when, when I follow in my discipleship, and I suddenly am aware of the others that the Master has called to come and follow, and they become co-discipleship, most of the time it is for the edification of all of us and for me as well. It really is part and parcel of what this means to us. So the other component of interbeing is this notion we are deeply connected to each other. And that's why when I came in, your name, sir? Nasa. Nasa? Raja. Raja? Raja actually started and said Namaste. Now, this I learned from Hindus. Of course, they've got the caste system, which is the worst form of, of you know, uh, distinctions between human beings. But this word Namaste... Namaste, basically, when two people come together and do this, what they're saying is, I bow to the God that I recognize in you. And the other person says, Namaste. I bow to this recognition of the God that is in you. And I always tell people, and this we only, most of us can experience this only with people that we trust, usually within the family, right? If, if I look deeply into somebody's eye, now most of the time we're ashamed of that, you can only see a glimpse of the honor that you have for yourself. Now, most of you, when, when I look straight at you, you're like, oh, geez, what's, what's this guy trying to do? It's like, come on, get out of here. But if you, you just, you, you look at somebody deep and you say, because in many ways your eye is a mirror to who you are. Why? Because it is this fascinatingly curious mirror. It's wanting to see the whole world. It's wanting to honor the whole world. And very similar to that, we also have this notion. So in this mutual viewing of each other is the viewing that God resides. And that's what connects you. And we usually have this in terms of the image of God. And we know this from Genesis that God creates and says, let us make human in our own image and in the image of God, God created man and woman. Okay? Again, this is just, just for, for you to, to flummox you to think 
I love it because the Trinitarian interpretation of this almost is we are created in the images of God, the triune one. So there's difference. For a long time I didn't know this, so I tried to make my wife into myself. (laughs) And then suddenly I said, no, there's an image that is different from me. And if I can recognize that and see our interbeing as lying in between both of us, both of us will be formed to that image that God continues to hope we can be shaped into. Right? So that's another component of what's happening within this formation. The third is the interbeing and interbelonging with creation. I feel that this is what makes all of us rich together and where we can move towards a common good. Okay? So the richness primarily is our ability to feel this belonging. Now, uh, you know, most of us don't feel this till we take a walk in the park. Oh, that's wonderful. So let's... Um, So this is the namaste. I just want to take you to that before we... Human beings in respectful and reciprocal relationship with each other. That's another part of this. Namaste. My soul honors your soul. I honor the place in you where the entire universe resides. I honor the light, love, truth, beauty and peace within you because it is also within me. In sharing these things, we are united. We are the same. We are one. Bowing to that honor that we are one becomes a very important component of what this means. And the other thing that we talked about is the interbeing or belonging also has to do with human beings in touch with the kin of nature. I love this quotation because this is how I think this interbeing can take place. So Connection with nature, according to Raymond Panikkar, who's an Indian uh, uh, theologian, says, is cutaneous rather than conceptual. Note, cutaneous means of relating to or affecting the skin. Latin for skin is cute, cutus. Panikkar says, although human beings, uh, although humans become so in community, the human community is not limited to its fellow human creatures. The human community is also cosmic since the human being is an integral and even a constitutive part of the cosmos. Our our contact with nature is not primarily conceptual but rather existentialist, even cutaneous, a characteristic that does not eliminate the participation of intellect in the experience of nature. It's almost feeling that takes place with the skin, skin to skin, and that's where akin with nature. And there's something I think in the 21st century that I believe we can learn about this belonging profoundly from other religious traditions. Indian traditions are great. But let, yes. Sure.
small differences between <coughs> the nominees. I, I think you're after what I'm asking you to reclaim is the hyphenatedness that links us together to be integral, both the head, the heart, but since you've mentioned it, it is also the bare feet, cutaneous. <laughs> because if you see most of the communities that know more about being akin with nature, it's those who walk bare feet. Okay? And I think, Amy, that's where not just can we learn from other religions and cultures, we can learn from our children's generation and our grandchildren's generation. They seem to actually be the bare feet people. And they think we're simply bearing our souls all the time to what the divine is. And they're saying, become more organic. See what our relationship with the earth is. Because it's this interbeing. And my sense is, and we'll talk about this when we come to the Trinity, a Jesus-only model cannot work with earth care as well as a Trinitarian model that involves being open to the movement and the winds of the Spirit. So even within these, you'll find that we may be talking a lot about a conceptual notion of God. There are other traditions that always are messily involved with their hands in terms of what this means to reaching out as neighbor. And there are this spiritual but not religious tradition that are the bare feet people. And I think we have to have a spacious enough conception which is at the root of our Trinitarian faith that we should be able to celebrate all of this and see how we could shape ourselves on this journey of come and follow to be respectful of that and see how we can learn from this as well. So I think your question was really good because it helped me reframe and bring back some of what we're dealing with over here. So again, this cutaneous sense of kinship with nature. Um, we don't need to go, to, go all the way to India um, and we, we, you know, um, uh, we don't need to learn from those Indians. We can learn basically from the Native Americans that you wrote you know, you called Indians because Columbus thought he'd actually reached India. Okay? So these are native communities. Um, the Laguna native tribe uh, recognizes that humans were sisters and brothers to the badger and the antelope, clay, yucca, and sun. It was not until they reached this wisdom of kinship that the Laguna people could emerge as a human community. This is the sense of what is going on in terms of this interbeing. Um, I have, let me just quickly uh, uh, go through the next couple of slides and then we'll have five minutes. So, so far we made a move that is somewhat conceptual, right? So what does it mean in the 21st century to reclaim our multiple hyphens that allows us to work with an interbeing hyphenated with God in the most intimate way possible, hyphenated with people around us and human communities in their diversity, the, all those whom Jesus calls that will be diverse, and what does it mean to be connected with the earth as kin of what happened, and how we need to reclaim all of these as we're following by learning from people who are different from us. Okay? So that's what was the first. Now the second is, so what does this mean for compassion? The purpose of God's com compassion, enjoining the compassion whose purpose is God's common good. right? So that's what we need to do. This again is, is something, I'm, I, I'm sure that this is really something we're going to struggle with. As I see the 21st century, I see two clear trajectories. One is the clashing in the common for parochial expansion. Okay, there's a conflictual model of religious interbeing, which has overcome the other difference. Um, I, you know, my, my next book will be out uh, in the uh, beginning of April, and it's called Competing Fundamentalisms. So what I looked there is at the early 20th century, the emergence of Christian fundamentalism, Islamic fundamentalism in Egypt and Hindu fundamentalism in India. 
God forbid, no one ever thought that they will come up with the fundamentalism, right? So I look at all of these and say that this is what is happening in global politics. This is what's going on in terms of the conflict and the expansion of parochial religious. So in that sense, there's a clashing in the common for parochial expansion. And the other model that I'm going to place with us, I'm going to spend more time next week, is compassionate togetherness for God's common good. Okay? Um, the, the, the report here talks about the clashes that's taken place. We've been warned uh, consistently over the last year about how this is going to actually just take over all of us in the U.S. and, and our securities are threatened. But some of this is real. Right? But some of this is also because of what we've been doing in the last 25 years in the world. Right? It's all, if you have interbeing, there's no one person gets all the blame business. That's why I wrote this book. I just felt that the Muslims are bearing an unfair burden of everything to do with competing fundamentalisms, you know, violent fundamentalism. So I looked and said, hey, I'm a Christian. I want to look back and see if we can share some of this guilt. Because after all, Jesus said, if you don't share the guilt, there's nothing to forgive you guys for, right? So I looked at Christianity and the ways in which, for example, this has led around the world over the last 110 years. I've also looked at Hinduism, a religion that, as I told you, I'm hyphenated. Let's look at So I think what we need to do is to recapture what it means to compassionately work together for God's common good. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop now because I'm going to let this slide uh, uh, work for, to, uh, for next week. And next week, what I'm going to work with is this particular slide. So just look at this, and this will almost be a primer for next week, where I'm going to talk about Jesus, the compassionate one, and the Holy One of God. But I'm going to define this quite differently. Compassion is something along the lines of being moved from the bowel, which is a Jewish idiom for having deep compassion. And it brings together deep love and concrete pity. What does this mean? We don't like the word pity. We can, we can look at other words, how they may actually work together. So thinking of Jesus as the compassionate one, and also thinking about Jesus as the Holy One. And that's our Christianness and uniqueness. Again, I'll define holy very differently. Most of us when we think of holy, think, oh man, these holy guys, meaning separate from the world, don't want to get involved with anything. But if you look at Jesus as the holy one, he's the most messed up, entangled one with all the things that were considered polluted in his society. And so we look at what this means for us. Um, we have a minute, do we? Uh, so we can take a couple of questions. And next time, stop me consistently because you know, got the gift of the gab, you've got to work against it. Just come back and say, please. Thank you very much for a very inspirational talk. One of the things, uh, one of the many things that I like about your talk today is the uh, uh, kingdom of God is within us and between us. And I like this between, this is something that Gloria and I experienced in Lebanon when we had open dialogues with Muslim friends. Oh. And uh, somehow we felt that they felt this spirit mm. and uh, this uh, uh, kingdom of, of God without necessarily using those words. Yes. And even they, I, we felt that they felt it even without their acceptance of some of the tenets of our own faith. Right. And on our part, without necessarily accepting tenets of their faith. But there was this kind of understanding. And I think perhaps open dialogue can be a very nice uh, a venue for, for developing this among different members of the community. Thank you. Thank and you so much. That they it also. That's, that's become so important. Point. Yes, which means reshaping your communities to be available in the in-betweenness of the relationship. And that is the most blessed point I'm realizing more and more. And that's why we give ourselves to Jesus Christ, because we want that in-between space. Again, we can go back to the mediator, bridge, all this language is in between space. Yes? Uh, are you saying that unless you can internalize this inner being, that your behaving and believing will be distorted? I, 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 you know, rather than thinking of this negatively, which, which is almost like a warning, watch out guys, this is going to happen to you, I think I'm opening arenas for us to reconsider where we can place some of our celebration place some of what it means to challenge ourselves in terms of our journey to Christianness and what it means for our churches as we try to work with this. Um, 
my own experience has taught me that it, 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 you know, we, we have two choices, right? Our, 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 our belonging and our believing in the end. And what I'm going to lead us to is a believing in the end that can give us a canopy of the spaciousness. Because most of us fear this. We're, we're all so afraid of this. So I would view that, and it's really an invitation to explore spaces. Rather than say that, geez, if you don't get it, you're in trouble, because I know I'm in trouble myself. I haven't got all of it. I'm opening the space that I myself am trying to reshape to live within these abodes. Only by the grace of God. The boss has got up, so I better... <laughs>